This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on today's episode. We're talking men's mental health with not one, but two experts joining us. Coach Kieran McBreen and clinical psychologist Dr. Matthew McCourt. Why is there still so much stigma around men getting help in this area? And what are some of the main challenges? So many messages on this topic and some really brave stories coming to the fore. We were in conversation with psychologist Charlie Spurway about the five love languages. If you haven't identified yours, we'll be telling you why it's so important to know that and your partners too. We're also meeting the author. Samantha Gregson was in the studio talking about her novel and why she chose to tell it through the eyes of her dog. Plus, it was climate conversations in association with Dubai Holding. We were looking to the creatures of the land and the sea and the air. Why is protecting this ecosystem so crucial for the planet? You know you've got the right people in the studio and you're already worried about running out of time. Today, joining us to unpack why men are struggling with their mental health in 2023 and why there is still something of reluctance to get help. We're joined by Karan McBreen, former teacher, son his MA in education around coaching and mentoring and now works with teens, adults and businesses on everything from boosting confidence to performance. And Dr. Matthew McCourt is here, a clinical psychologist. He works with adolescents and adults at Sage Clinics. He's worked in the NHS across a whole range of issues, including gambling, has, has really amazing experience across a huge number of therapeutic approaches from CBT to cognitive analytic therapy and psychodynamic therapy as well. Now, please, and I really mean this, gentlemen, if you are struggling or suffering in any shape or form, if what we're talking about today is raising up any red flags in how you're feeling, you can get in touch, have your say, and of course, ask questions of our two experts in the studio completely anonymously. Gentlemen, it's great to have you in the studio. Um, I'd love to start, if you don't mind, with you, Karen. We think about the way we talk about mental health in men in particular. And I'm thinking about like my dad, who is a very kind of stoic, northern man in his 70s. And I don't think he's ever talked about his mental health. How do you feel like the conversation's changed in just one generation? I would say we're in a really good place. It is changing. It can change more, and we need it to change more, but we are moving in the right direction. I can completely concur with you. I could describe my, my own dad in the same, and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that. No, they just sure. didn't have the skill set. They just weren't ready. But we are ready now, and we need to lead by example and show more people that we're ready to talk up and talk out. What about you, Matthew, when we think about um, increase in men coming into clinic there mm-hmm. at Sage? Is that something you've noticed in, in your time as a psychologist? Um, yeah, I think certainly over the last you know number of years, we are starting to see men who recognise that they're struggling with mental health difficulties, with low self-esteem, whatever it is, and actually feel comfortable um, reaching out for some help. Um, again, I think that's due to the changing conversations that we're having. I'm, I'm always keen for taking a positive out of the pandemic. <laughs> and I do feel like that is something that we started to be equipped a little bit more with the language around mental health. Um, and as we said, it just became a lot more mainstream to talk about here are signs that you might be struggling. We are going to be, of course, coming to that. Um, Dr. Matthew, are you able to explain a little bit about some of the common challenges, the issues that you're seeing coming up in clinic for male clients in particular? And I'm really asking this as a way of mm. opening up to listeners today to go, OK, it's not just me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's an important thing as well is to normalise it. Um, so suppose 
the the types of things that we would see in men, um, by and large, you know, are kind of it's very wide, right? So it's kind of across the whole span of any mental health condition, depression, low mood, anxiety, um, specific phobias, um, relational issues as well. So whether that's between kind of colleagues or families or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And low self-esteem sometimes too, once you kind of start to think a bit more about what's underlying and what's um, behind some of these things, a lot of men will come in and actually there'll be some sense of you know, low self-perception, low self-esteem um, that then drives some of the other presenting difficulties. That's interesting. So they might come in with what, to, to their mind, addressing a problem, but actually when mm. you dig into it, there could be something that you end up talking yeah. completely, Se- completely different. Stuff, yeah. And what about in coaching, Kieran? What have you what have you noticed some of the, the stumbling blocks, the obstacles, the pain points? Well, first of all, I, I would say that a lot of times people come on and say, look, I'm here because my wife told me to be here. <laughs> Uh-huh. I've know? had a few messages from wives, I'm <laughs> yeah. just saying that, and I, we welcome them. Yeah, and, uh, and I said, that's great. You've got a supportive wife at home, wonderful. So let's get cracking. Yeah. And a lot of the times it's a lack of purpose. When you delve deep, when you probe, when you stretch, it's about having a lack of purpose. It's yeah. very common for middle-aged men to, to you know, be a lad growing up, um, get, get a university degree, get a job, love their job. And then maybe growing up takes place. Mm-hmm. It happens. And you get married and have children. And they're going to work to provide, which is wonderful, but providing in an organization, in an environment, in an atmosphere that's maybe not helpful to you anymore. Maybe you've outgrown it. And the purpose element comes from a case of, oh, I have to go in to do this job. I don't like it. So we need to find that purpose again, maximize the skills, maximize the resources and explore. It's so interesting that you mentioned that because there was a study just in the last couple of days um, that's come out from researchers at McGill University and University of British Columbia. And they talked about the connection between presence of meaning in life that purpose and psychological distress. So those who experience a greater sense of meaning in their lives were less likely to experience general psychological strain. They also went in to look at aspects around loneliness and and isolation. Mm. Is that something that's come up in clinic, Matthew, about maybe not having a good peer network, not having found friends and meaningful connections, especially in an expat capacity as well? Yeah, definitely. I think both of those things... um the the kind of meaning and also the the sense of isolation. And I think the thing that comes up is you know because people could come on and this isn't to say that people are necessarily isolated or incredibly lonely in that they've got no social connections. But actually, what they're missing is the the value of that social connection mm. and the you know so they might have a, a huge big group of friends, but they don't feel comfortable in being able to go to them whenever things are tough. Right? Mm. They don't feel comfortable in being able to open up and ask for help. It's not not to not to minimize it at all because we all need this, but there's a lot of kind of superficial um, interactions there whereby you're going out and you're meeting up and you're maybe going for dinner or coffee or drinks or whatever it is, but they don't feel comfortable in going beyond that and having those vulnerable conversations and asking for help. What role do you think that plays, Kieran? Those those ideas of having a network, a peer group, a friendship group, and the impact it can have on mental health. I think it's essential. I think if we, um, from an expert perspective, if we look back. At our time at home, we might have grown up with friends that we've, we know for years. So we're comfortable in that setting. And they have the context of, I know your mum and dad, I know mm. the struggles, I know what might be happening in a friendship Absolutely. or family dynamic. Absolutely. So trust comes into this. Mm-hmm. And as wonderful as, as our friends may be over here, maybe some people are just not ready to be fully open and expressive in this environment. Mm-hmm. Trust is massive. And the connection, you know, the connection of, of friendship here could, could be, you know, going to watch the, the sports you know, events uh, uh, in, in the pub, 
But that's not the environment we are going to say, you know what, I'm really struggling with this. Mm. We've had a message here saying, why is going to therapy such a problem? Why is it a blow to the ego? We're going to talk about that stigma next. Joining us in studio, we've got clinical psychologist Dr. Matthew McCourt and we from CMB, Kieran McBreen is with us today. Joining us in the studio today, Kieran McBreen, former teacher. He's done an MA in education and coaching and mentoring and now works with teens, with adults, with businesses. And Dr. Matthew McCourt is a clinical psychologist. He's there from Sage Clinics. Um, as I said, text lines are open. It's so interesting to get your take on why there is a stigma, some of the issues that you or perhaps your partner are struggling with. And um, we've, got a, we've got a gentleman caller on the line. Who's there, please, sir? Hi, Helen. My name is Lee. I hope you're well. Hi, Lee. Tell us a little bit about your experiences around mental health. I understand you've struggled in the past. Yeah, just uh, look, I I play pro football here in the UAE. I'm out here about five years. And I suppose since the age of probably my mid-20s, really, I, I struggle really bad, you know, especially, especially kind of, I suppose, playing sport and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It's not really, I suppose nowadays it's getting better, but it's not, spoken about enough I, I struggled throughout my teens really taking medication and in and out of uh, you know psychiatric units and yeah it was, it was tough and, and, and to be honest um, now look I'm doing a lot better and I think speaking about it was probably the best thing I could ever done even though you know I know a lot of people say it but just just helped me so much really and try, try to get the right help and, and and speaking to my mates as well and stuff like that you know you, I thank you for your generosity around sharing that because I think that sports environment, as you say, in some ways hugely supportive because you've got your friends around you. But there is a certain element of, you know, putting on a front and masculinity, that competitive spirit as well. How did you find people to talk to? Who, who were who were, were your people, Lee, when it came to actually sharing what look, you were struggling with? I, I actually think for me personally, look, I, I suffer really bad with depression and, uh, you know, severe anxiety. And I found you know friends outside of my family circle really really helped me you know um because it, it's it's quite hard obviously i come from ireland originally and even back in ireland it, it's 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 a taboo subject you know it, it's it's you're, you're told kind of to i was even told myself to kind of you know grow up and you know you need to you need to get on with your life but sometimes it's not always that easy but just mm-hmm. talking to my friends and people within sports really helped me and really helped me focus again and stuff like that and i I found as well, even, I, I, you know, I don't know what it's like here now, but medication can be pushed on you for these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I did find initially, look, medication worked for me, but definitely wasn't a long-term answer, you know. Um, at times, it even made me worse. And can I ask then, how are you doing now? How are you feeling now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at the moment. Uh, don't get me wrong. I still suffer from anxiety. I still get, you know, panic attacks, but... I think I've gotten to a stage where, where I can I can manage it. It's it's manageable, and uh, you know I, I have a good network around me. I I don't drink a lot of alcohol anymore, or anything like that. You know I, I enjoy a casual drink. Um, with myself, I found just alcohol made it, you know, a hundred times worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people do. You know, people that suffer from anxiety and depression that go out and have big nights out. I think. I think really, if you can knock them on the head, it really does help to to cut down your alcohol intake and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, you know. Um, I just wanted to um, ask you for some advice then to any any man that's listening today who's found themselves in in your situation and whether that is in the doctor's surgery or indeed feeling feeling alone and isolated. What advice would you give, Lee? Look, there's there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel. That's, you know, whether it, however hard it is now, it, it does take time. 
uh, time is a healer. Um, I always said he heals all wounds. Um, but yeah, just reach out, reach out to people. Um, even myself, I'd be more than happy to talk to anyone in Dubai and meet them for a coffee and give advice. Um, I've got a I've got an Instagram handle there, LRG Goalkeeping. I have my own kind of sporting here in Dubai. But look, myself happy to talk. And I think once you take that step to just talk confidentially with someone, mm-hmm. it just it opens up a whole new um, kind of aspect of life and. And you see things from a, from a different point of view, but it is hard. It, it is hard at the start. It is. And I think, as you as you alluded to, it's an ongoing thing. It's not like okay, I've you know I've had I've had no. the meds and I've had some chats and I'm fine now. No. But you've got that self awareness now to keep yourself in check yeah. and go. No. Do you know what? I'm struggling today, or I've had a bad week. But to have the confidence and to know where to go for help, I feel like is so so important. So thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think one of the one of the biggest things as well, just before I wrap up, is. Nobody knows what's going inside, going on inside someone, you know. And um, you can look like the happiest go lucky person because I did. I looked like, you know, I was a happy guy. I never had an issue getting a girlfriend, but nobody knew what was going inside, going on inside my kind of, you know, in, in my life and stuff. So I think it's important as well for us to kind of, um, you know, don't don't judge a book by its character or anything like that. Just to obviously, be be gentle with people. You know, that's important. Lee, thank you so much. Um, I've no worries. Uh, no, I really do appreciate it. I've had messages going, Lee is a legend. Wishing him all the best. It's LR Goalkeeping on Instagram, and I think that offer LRG coffee. Goalkeeping, yeah. Thank you so, so much, Lee. Um, no really problem. appreciate you getting in touch and uh, wishing you all the very best in the future. Yeah, so have a good one. Take care, Take care fella. LR Goalkeeping, if you want to have a coffee with Lee. I, I mean, how important is it, do you think, Matthew, to hear from people like Lee, who's just got in touch after hearing us chatting now to, to share his story in terms of normalising this, you know, talking there about being in sports and everything being great on the surface, but other stories going on behind that? Massively important. Um, I mean, I think this is the thing. It's, it is about normalising it. It's about making sure that we can provide that space and make sure that people don't feel like they're the only one. Um, that's going through this because that's what stops people from coming forward. It's that fear that I'm going to be the one that's left out. I'm going to be, you know, the the the, the different one or the, you know, uh, quote unquote the the broken one or the one that can't handle things. That's the fear. That's what stops people um, seeking help. What about you, Karen? What 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 have you kind of noticed with clients about the stigma of of getting help and saying, do you know what? I'm not okay. I'm not doing well. I think they're an absolute credit and I concur with Lee there. It's, it's a credit to him for speaking out. I'm a big advocate of leading by example. And the more men that we can get speaking out like this, the more men will hear and will normalise it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as soon as people start seeing or feeling, maybe more so than seeing, benefits in expressing themselves, then we're moving in a better direction, in the right direction. And, and you know... It takes time, as Lee said. It's not an overnight fix. You know, it might took 20, 40 plus years to, to be in that state. So we can't expect it to change overnight. Mm-hmm. So we have to be patient. We have to work with our partners. It's a team effort. Mm-hmm. But uh, normalising it without a doubt is great. And people like Lee now, um, by leading by example, are essential. I would just like to say it's complete coincidence we've had three male <laughs> Irish voices on this topic today. If you wanted to keep the time, this was the worst <laughs> choice of, uh, of the speakers. <laughs> Um, we've had a message from Chris, who I think is a really interesting one, um, saying, um, do your experts um, think that male expats have better or worse mental health than those in their home countries? So we're going to talk about some of the expat-specific challenges next. And um, we've had a message saying, are there any male support groups? Um, we're going to be highlighting, again, the importance of peers and going to the text line next. 
Joining us in the studio, Dr. Matthew McCourt, clinical psychologist. He works with adolescents and adults at Sage. He's worked in the NHS. He's had something of a deep dive when it comes to gambling addictions as well, but works with a whole range of therapeutic approaches. And from CMB, we have got Kieran McBreen, former teacher. He's done his MA in education and coaching and mentoring and now works with teens, with adults and with businesses as well. Everything from boosting confidence to performance in the workplace. Um, it's really interesting to hear what's coming in on the text line, guys. Um, we've had a number of wives getting in touch, acknowledging that their husbands need help and not sure how to get that. So we're going to be addressing that. Um, Chris has been in touch saying, thanks for this, guys. Curious if male expats have better or worse mental health than those in their home countries. I don't know if there's going to be any data on this, Matthew, but you've worked, as I said, in, in the UK and here. Mm. So if not better or worse, what are some of the unique challenges that you think expat life can have on men's mental health? Yeah, I think that's probably the best way of looking at it is the, the unique challenges and the differences just. So I suppose if you think about living an, living an expat life, you've uprooted, you've left your home, you've left your family of origin, you've left your close friend group, you've come out to a new country with a new culture, um, completely different society, completely different way of living, um, and you've somehow got to find your feet. Um, and you've also got the pressure of, I'd say, for the vast majority, people coming here for work. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, wanting to, you know, leave Dubai as a so-called winner, you know, be financially yeah. up. Yeah. So the pressure on that work performance must play a big part too. Yeah, performance. So there's there's that kind of sense of getting, getting what you can, getting what you came here for. Mm. Um, but also the added pressure of... You need a job to stay here. You do. Um, you, you know, if you, if you don't have a job, then you're on on very thin ice, mm -hmm. right? You've got a short window of time to be able to find one, but you do need a job to be able to stay here. So that just adds an extra layer of pressure. And um, we've talked about this on the show before, Matthew, about what happens if you hate your job, mm. you know, th how, how challenging that can be. Um, we've had a message here, anonymous message, and as I said earlier, you don't need to put your name on it, it's absolutely fine, um, saying, I've been in Dubai four years and have yet to meet a good group of friends. My wife is really social with her job. We've got joint couple friends, but no one I have a huge amount of common with, e.g. I don't drink, I don't play golf, and I'm more interested in politics and debate. I know I should join clubs, which ones, he's saying, um, but I just can't bring myself to turn up somewhere with a room full of strangers. I think think it'd be weird if people like I can't wait to get in with a room full of strangers that sounds great Kiran you've you know you meet people from all walks of life given what you do what advice would you give to this listener yeah so there's two approaches I would take there one is a nice approach and one is a pretty direct approach the nice approach go on <laughs> warm us up the nice approach is for this gentleman to go with somebody and I'm sure myself and Matthew would happily go with him whenever mm. he wants to go next time. And I genuinely mean that. Um, so go with, go with somebody, arrange it in advance. Go. He, he's aware that he wants to do it. So my, my, my more dictative perspective would be, well, let's go and do it. What's mm. stopping you? If you really want to do it, go. So we need to work with that. So it's, it really is two different paths to take. As I say, um, if something and anything as aspect of life, if somebody wants to do it and they're coming up with reasons not to do it well maybe they just don't want to do it enough mm. there's that sense of feel the fear and do it anyway is that from Ex uh, exposure therapy Matthew yeah 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 and I mean this is the thing it's it you will learn that it's okay it's terrifying the first time you do it, it. absolutely it absolutely is I think there's it's also an idea of catastrophizing which is mm. like what is the worst thing that yeah. could happen it's like to keep really. you safe yeah, it, of, course, mm. of course it is. Like, you know, I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to be feeling lonely. I don't want to be ignored. I don't want to feel like a fool. Like, mm. like, like, let's name it. It's, it's, it's a pretty scary situation. Yeah. 
but if you don't know anyone, you might never see these people again and you might leave and never, you know, it doesn't really matter what they think of you. They're probably feeling the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about some of the red flags because we've had, as I said, messages talking about some of the address, you know, issues that we're addressing around loneliness, around isolation, around work pressures. But when, to your mind as a clinical psychologist, is professional help necessary? Can you explain whether it is preemptive or when things can get to crisis point? Yeah, I mean, I think my my view is that the best approach is always preventative, right? The best approach is to, to even if that means coming to therapy when you're not feeling Does incredible. anyone actually do that? Some, yeah, God. some. I think when people, when people have... Um, when people have a bit of stability, but they're noticing that certain things are coming up, mm. right? Whether that's, you know, they have started a new job, they've come to a new country, they've become parents for the first time, right? And they're they're noticing patterns of their behavior that maybe they didn't notice before. There are people who go, do you know what? Look, things are going well, but actually this is bothering me and I want to I want to get to the bottom of it. So th- that is, it's, it's, a, it's the best approach. It's not always the approach taken because if things are going well, you normally don't want to, you know, poke the proverbial wasp, wasp's mm-hmm. nest, right? Um, so prevention is always better than um, than anything else. But when things aren't going well, when you start to notice that you are, say, chronically low in mood, when it's not shifting, when you're unable to do the things that you used to enjoy anymore, if there's a huge shift in behavior, if there's a huge shift in thought pattern, if you're noticing a lot more negative self-talk, um, if your mood is much lower, if you're starting to withdraw and isolate yourself away from your friends, your family, your loved ones, that's when you'd want to stop and think, right, well, what's actually going on here? Mm-hmm. Right? Is this maybe time that I just need to go in and speak to somebody? Um, just to try and, you know, if possible, nip it in the bud, provide some strategies, provide some understanding as to what's actually happening. Or if it's at the stage where we are in a, a kind of mental health um, difficulty, then be able to work through that in a safe space. I know. I think it's it's safe to say that you know the three of us here are pretty evolved when it comes to being very positive mm-hmm. about about therapy, and I think that's great. Um, however, I still think there's a huge amount of stigma attached to it, um, and that mm-hmm. is really sad in some ways. Kieran, I, won- I wondered if you could speak to why you think there still is this idea of you know it's weak to get help as a man in particular. Mm-hmm. Well, we were myself, Matt, you were talking earlier about the whole idea of you know boys don't cry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, boys do cry. And unfortunately, boys cry and men cry behind behind closed doors a lot. And we need to make sure that that doesn't have to happen. You know, we need to be strong for each other. Nobody needs to suffer alone in today's society. Mm. Too many people have suffered in the past. We've all suffered. And um, there's so much support and help out there. There's so many solutions out there. There's so many people who want to help. So we really shouldn't have to suffer alone. I think, unfortunately, we are seeing young men's mental health at an absolute crisis. You know, we're seeing tragically record numbers of, of young men taking their own lives. And I think conversations such as this are so, so valuable. So as parents, we can start to recognise things in our boys as well, as well as in our partners, our brothers, our dads even. Matthew is in great segment on male mental health. It's really nice to hear and listen. Um, Matthew, can I ask you, are there any particular ages or life stages that you've noticed or even that there might be data about when men's mental health can get to crisis point? Um it's interesting. I found a, a review this morning, um, Men's Experiences of Mental Illness Stigma Across the Lifespan, a scoping review. This is by McKenzie and colleagues from 2021. 
and what they've found in this review so this is a review whereby they look at the um, studies that have been published they put all of the results together and they give an overview um, they'd found that young men um, they didn't give a, an age bracket but young men um, and those who have less experience of mental health difficulties are more stigmatizing of mental health difficulties um, and what they've drawn from this is that some sort of exposure to and acknowledgement of mental health difficulties may be or rather a lack of that may be a contributing factor to stigmatizing mental health difficulties and therefore reducing help-seeking behavior mm -hmm. so i think young men who haven't experienced mental health difficulties is probably a one category that we could put this in mm -hmm. and then there's also a kind of any sort of serious or major transition in life i think that transcends age um you know chronologically you're going to be older um, whenever you're starting to have children and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So if it is having children, if it is getting a new job, if it is losing your job, a serious transition in life can be another kind of heightened area of, of emotional um, distress. Kieran, you've spoken really openly and very gen generously about your own mental health in, in recent years and, and as, a, as a teen as well. Does that ring true with your experiences, I guess, major life events and, and traumas as well? No, absolutely. I mean, for me, as you know, teenage life wasn't, you know, so so such a happy time. And like Matthew said earlier, um, people couldn't see it. People seen that it was the captain of the football team, the cross country team, happy guy, but deep down, not so happy. And nobody asked the questions. You know, and of course, um, it's a different era, so the skill set wasn't there to ask these questions, I suppose. Um, and and today, you know. There's lots of lots of different reasons that people struggle and, and when children come along, I find for families it's a very, very difficult time mm -hmm. because the build up of the excitement of everything and then reality kicks in. Mm -hmm. um, and that's obviously for everybody, not just a man. Oh, it is, but I think that men are neglected in that dynamic an awful lot. You know, when my kids, especially the first one came along, it was all like, how's Helen, how's the baby? And I'm like, well, I mean, obviously it was, it, was, it was tough for me, but no one asked about my husband. Yeah. No one said, you know, that sense of shifting identity, thinking about more responsibility on your shoulders. How d how do you feel about the changing family? No one asked him. No one. And, you know, and that's not even taking into account any kind of baby loss or trying to conceive. And I do feel like men are often really tragically left out of that conversation. No, absolutely. And from my own personal experience, after going through three miscarriages, mm -hmm. um, the stigma for me was to be the strong person in the relationship. And I was the strong person. I'm proud of being the strong person. But actually, I, I regret it because I wish I was more present at the time. Mm -hmm. I particularly remember my wife calling me saying that there was, a, you know, there was blood. And I knew what was happening. I knew what was happening. I knew, I knew where I was going to pick her up from work. And as I was driving to pick her up, you know, I, tears were coming down my eyes. And I kept saying to myself, be strong, be strong, be strong. And um, I had to show no fear. Well, I felt I had to show no fear is exactly my point. And I picked her up and I hugged her and I, we drove there and we had to go through a scan and I knew exactly what we were going to find in the scan. And I knew exactly what words I was going to say as soon as, you know, the news came and I seen her breaking down and I couldn't break down. I had to be the strong one. And I was the strong one, and, and it happened three times. Oh, and every time I was the strong one. But now, when I look back, I, 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 I've got lots of pain. Mm -hmm. And this happened in Dubai. 
and it's a hospital in Sheikh Zayed Road. And every time I drive by the hospital, I just get a pain in my heart mm-hmm. and oh, so think sorry. that there's a part of me who who was thrown into a bin or thrown. It just, okay. it's just, it just, it hurts me, mm-hmm. and I hurt now because. I didn't share that pain at the time. I was the strong one. And, um, and I, I want that pain to go away and I work on myself and I'm all about speaking and, and I share this because I'm not the only one. There's lots of men out there that's gone through what I've gone through and, and unfortunately will go through. Mm-hmm. And of course, we don't want to normalize this experience, but we want to normalize the the feelings of it's okay to be in pain and you mm-hmm. don't have to be the strong one. We're, t- we're in it together. Mm-hmm. We're a team and we will do it together. And, and one thing I'd say about couples coming over here is that you are a team and there will be ups and downs and whatever, whatever you experience, you know, you will get through it because you have to. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, yeah. I'm so, so sorry for what you and your wife have been through. I think what you said is going to resonate tragically with an awful lot of people listening today. And I think it is a really valuable reminder that baby loss happens to a couple you know it really does and message here saying I feel your pain brother so thank you for getting in touch there and we've also had some really lovely messages asking and offering up you know we heard from Lee earlier saying he'd go for a coffee with someone that Matthew and Kieran saying that you know if you want to go to a group they'll come along and be your wingman mm. um, and Nicola saying hey Helen Cycle Safe Dubai has open doors a different group you need a bike uh, but we've got different levels of fitness ability fitness has been shown to have a positive impact on mental well-being my numbers on the website then come along for a try get you out in early a weekend what about that Matthew about that you know being active being mm. you know think, thinking about your whole whole brain and, and body is that something that comes up in clinic in terms of looking after your whole self yeah definitely I mean um, I've got a blog post on our website actually about this talking about physical health and mental health and exercise and well-being and the link between the two um so i think there's a few things that that go on there there's the the kind of routine side of it which we've talked about earlier about having that routine having something to do having a purpose as well and a, and a kind of goal that you're working toward um and then also there's the the neurochemical side of things the the endorphins and the the, the neurochemicals that are released whenever you're exercising that just are natural mood boosters right um so i think there's there's a a host of different ways that you can get involved in it and it doesn't have to be anything massive right in fact i i would recommend if if you're just getting back into exercise or if you're using exercise to help with your mental health not to do it um extensively you take it slow you build up because what would happen is you know and and i've i've been guilty of this in the past you have a bit of a time off and you go back to the gym or you go back to your exercise and you push yourself too hard and the next day you're done no it's also the idea of going do you know what i'm going to sort myself out i'm going to go beast mode and then you inevitably don't go to the gym for seven days a week that you'd promise yourself and then you feel terrible about yourself about it so not helpful yeah um i just want to say um we've had some amazing messages for you kieran and um i think what you've shared today is so so important we've had a message saying tell him he's made me cry now as i had the same experience but the difference was i was there when that miscarriage happened it's, it's devastating and again a message saying thank you for sharing your story men need to go easy on themselves it don't be the strong one at some moments yeah i think that's so so true matthew i wanted to end if you don't mind mm. by perhaps demystifying therapy mm-hmm. a little bit because <laughs> we think about therapy being for other people yeah. for the crazy people yeah. and that's absolutely not the no. case at all however a lot of people 
don't know what actually happens behind closed doors. And no. um, we've had a message here saying officers need to have mental health checkups. Referring to therapy nicely will help men too. Think about yeah. it as being a positive thing, not a last, not a last chance saloon. So yeah, let's. I don't want to role play because that would be weird. But <laughs> let's say I let's say someone comes into your clinic mm-hmm. for the first time, and we're talking about some of the red flags that you raised earlier. That. Yeah. That chronic low mood, not finding joy in things, you know, having sleep problems, relationships mm-hmm. starting to struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, what, are, what are some of the questions you'd be asking and, and what were some of the things that might be addressed during that initial session? Um, so suppose the initial assessment or the initial session, we would hope to be um, starting some sort of comprehensive assessment, right? So that's going to be looking at what's going on right now, what's bringing you into the room, right? What's bringing you into therapy now, Um and I suppose it, it, you know, there are some things that we would want to be looking at, like history of where this started, when this started, do they know why it started? Is it better or worse at some times? Um, you know, have they had, have they sought help for this in the past? We'd also want to get a bit of a sense of what their life's like just in general, right? So, you know, what do you do on the day to day? What's your job? What are your social activities? What's your family like? What's your relationships like? And as I'm saying this, I'm aware that this can feel really probing and really intense. These questions would only be asked and we would only be going there if it felt comfortable right mm-hmm. so this is the thing i think the the main kind of view on therapy at the minute um or certainly over the years is that coming and lie on a couch and tell me everything about you um, tell me about your mother yeah and that's 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 come from one kind of therapy right yeah. that stems from kind of freudian psychoanalysis therapy isn't like that therapies of you know when I say therapy isn't like that, all of therapy isn't that, right? So it's a very collaborative process in which we take it together, we take it at the person's pace, we don't force anything on them, and all we're doing really, when it comes down to it, is just providing a safe space for somebody to come and feel comfortable about opening up and making some links between what they're going through and what they've gone through. I think that opening up is really crucial because the first time I went for counselling, it was like... (laughs) How are you? Fine. <laughs> it's a massive waste of 700 dirhams that I'm not going to get back. Yeah. But, you know, it's a big step to, to get yourself in that room mm. and finding someone that you that you do trust, someone that... comfortable with. Exactly, exactly. Because I feel like everyone can benefit from talking mm. to someone with absolutely no agenda, with, yeah. whether it's, you know, a partner or a friend who might be looking at their watch going, OK, you know, there's something I want to be watching in mm. half an hour's time. Mm. Can we wrap this up? Or, you know, a colleague. Having someone who has got no context no agenda the only thing is feeling like you are there we're there for them and the thing is that you know a lot of what we do might actually just be to listen we talked about listening we talked about listening before it doesn't have to be us always speaking in fact if anything it's better if we're not Mm -hmm. we're we're there to listen actively and non-judgmentally a perfect example i'm going into school on um thursday helen to deliver a session to parents on listening you know and it's, I think it's a lost skill. It's a skill where we're not fully present. It's, um, it's uh, you know, people always want to, people always want to jump in. People always want to give a solution to your problem. Maybe you, know, maybe you don't want a solution to your problem. Maybe you just simply want to be listened to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both. It's been a really, really valuable discussion and judging by the messages, a much needed one and one that perhaps has sadly been neglected in the past. So I cannot thank you both, Kiran, for your honesty and your insights mm. as well. And Dr. Okay. Matthew from yeah. Sage for um, telling us a little bit about what happens behind closed doors <laughs> and, and really normalizing some of the, the many yeah. issues that all people, men in particular, have been talking about this hour are facing here in the UAE. Um, Kieran, where can people find you if they're looking for some individuals, some corporate coaching? What's the best place? Yeah, my website, HelenCMBCoachingandTraining.com. 
and my Instagram is Coach CMB McBreen. And you're up for a coffee and going along as a wingman. Absolutely. 100%. And for you, Dr. Matthew, where can people find you? Um, I'm based in Sage Clinics in downtown Saha offices. Our website's sage-clinics.com. If you want details of those guys, you can just send me the word men. You can, <laughs> you can send me an Irish flag if you want, <laughs> and I will send you those details. Um, but thank you to everyone who's been in touch this hour. Um, I really hope we've gone some way to... Uh, help you out to address what you might be going through and of course give you some give you some ideas and solutions for for being here our next guest is a psychologist a coach who worked with many men and women and relationship dynamics definitely a big part of her practice what role do love languages have though what is a love language how do you find yours let's find out now with charlie spurway i love the topic of love languages, Charlie. Great to have you with us. Um, for anyone that is like, what is Helen going on about love languages? There are five. What, what do you want to start with? Hi, thanks for having Hi. me. Um, yeah, love languages are a huge part of all of our uh, relationships, not necessarily just our romantic ones, but they come up mostly um, with the clients that I have that are in couples or having relationship challenges. So quite simply, um, a love language is how we give and receive love. And if we don't have the knowledge around love languages, um, it kind of affects the success of our relationships because we probably have an unmet need or if our love languages or other needs that we have are not aligning with our partner, um, we tend to be more critical of them, more resentful of them, and we genuinely tend to feel unloved by them. That's interesting. So it can it can be that serious. I'm I'm trying to think. I'm trying to not give away too much about my own marriage, um, but it is it's something that we struggled with, or I certainly struggled with at the beginning of our relationship, um, because the way my husband gives love is not how I receive it. We're going to talk about what these five love languages are and where, where there can be potential clashes and miscommunication. So there are five. Which love language would you like to start with, Charlie? Let's go for words of affirmation. Okay. Tell us about that as a love language. Yeah. So if this resonates with you, um, your most dominant love language may be words of affirmation. So if you enjoy feeling seen and known and understood or validated, or possibly you like compliments, or maybe you just like hearing I love you or thank you or um, something that might resonate with asking how your time uh, was today at work or your time in a hobby. Um, so words of affirmation are genuinely where we like to verbally hear somebody appreciating us and loving us through words. I think that's a really good distinction. It's not It's not just about giving compliments and that kind of throwaway, you look nice, but it can be saying, oh, you know, Charlie, I really admired how you handled that situation. You know, someone, someone taking the time to recognise and then verbalise what they've experienced and what they've seen. Yeah, oh, and then, yeah, and there's the the I love yous are, are, you know a big part of it as well. So that is words of affirmation. What is love language number two on your list? Um, so a big one is quality time. So quality time is genuinely divided into emotional or social connection. So this is where we are spending quality time with our loved ones. And that doesn't mean sat on the sofa with the TV on. That actually means engaging together. Um, doing a particular activity or a hobby. So it could be simply uh, walking down the canal or walking along the beach 
um, or maybe just playing a, a pack of cards. It could be a variety of things, but ultimately it doesn't just have to be a traditional going for a dinner date. So um, my, I think my husband's love language is quality time. Well, he's got, I think he's got two. I think most, I think most people have one dominant and one kind of secondary. So as an example, on Sunday night, we, um, he signed us up for a paddle tournament. Did I want to do this? Absolutely not. Um, I was so nervous because I played a bit of paddle, but we were playing basically against the whole Spanish population of Dubai, who are excellent at paddle, I should point out. But it was really, really important to him. And I was like, just want to tell you, I'm really nervous about doing this. But it was that was me kind of going, I'm showing you how much I love you by putting myself in a situation that I am really, really anxious about. We lost for what it's worth. So quality time, making memories together, spending time together is not side by side watching Netflix. Yeah, just to build on your example there, um, remembering that love is an active choice, okay? So even if it's things that we don't want to be doing, we're showing our partner that we love them and we're committed to them. Within reason. Within reason, <laughs> um, because obviously one of his personality needs, therefore, is going to be kind of growth, right, around maybe health and fitness, mm -hmm. um, which we'll talk about, which is slightly different from love languages, but the quality time. Okay, we're going to yeah. be outlining the other three love languages let us know yours on 4001 there is a quiz you can do it's just simply google love language quiz this is um over on five love languages.com um this is from uh, dr gary chapman whose book has sold out many a time there's also love languages for children it's something that we had to do at church as part of our marriage preparation course and i'm so so grateful we did because it's really helped us in so many ways we're talking love languages in the studio this afternoon. We have got psychologist and coach Charlie Spurway. Psychologist and coach Charlie Spurway is in the studio. We're talking about the five love languages. We've already been talking about words of affirmation and quality time. What's next on your list, Charlie? The one I think we all know, which is physical touch. Now, let's talk about that. Un unpack that because I think there might be a few myths, myths or confusion around it. Yeah, so with physical touch, um, let's remember that we have five senses. So it could be simply being close, feeling warmth. It could be holding hands. It could be a kiss. It could be a hug. Um, it could just be, you know, a slight stroke of a finger. It doesn't necessarily need to be intimate. Um, and most people don't think that. So physical touch can happen at multiple times, um, you know, during the day or over the course of the week um, where it can be kind of explored in a nicer way mm -hmm. um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. We've actually had a message about two, two messages around the physical touch um, love language. One is, which we're, we're going to come to after half past, which is basically saying my boyfriend and I um, are together. His love language is physical touch and he needs a lot of it. So we're going we're gonna to address that after half past. The text lines are open. If you want to know, share your love language or indeed any issues you might be having with it. Love language number four, Charlie Spurway. Is acts of service. Ah, interesting. Okay, what do we mean by acts of service in this context? So most people would see this as cooking, as cleaning, as maybe doing the laundry, uh, maybe being the person in charge of paying the bills or doing the admin. Uh, maybe somebody who's um, booking holidays. Um, it's basically someone who's doing something as a service to help out. And that could be aiming to lighten a mental load or, you know, something that might be on your to-do list. So it's interesting because I'd say my my husband's other uh, love language is acts of service, which means he pays attention to things that I wouldn't even notice. 
and you know I I love him for it but there are sometimes I'm like I actually don't care that the shower rail is wonky can I just have a hug please do you, do you know what I mean and I think what can be really interesting and crucial about knowing your partner's love language is when they are doing something it's it's how they express love. It's just we just need to perhaps uh, uh, reframe it in our mind of going. He's doing that because he loves you. And I spoke to and I miss her all the time. Um, a counsellor called Helen Williams who lived in Dubai for a long time. She's back in New Zealand now, and we, we, we talked about love languages. And I went to see her for counselling, um, and she was talking about how she had doubted her husband's love for her because he didn't express love in the way that she was used to receiving which I think was physical touch if, if memory serves correctly and he'd said to her well you know think about this morning you know I got up early you needed to have that letter to the post box before the first post was taken and he said I got up and I did that for you and I loved you every step of the way to that post box and I loved you the whole way home and she was like oh, I thought you were just you know putting a letter in the post box and I think it can be so good to just you know reframe why our partners do what they do. And acts of service can be actually a very loving thing to do. That's all. <laughs> so, number five, what what are we left with? If everyone's going, that's it's not words of affirmation. No, it's not really physical touch. What's our last one? Because it's one of the most misunderstood as well, I would say. Yeah, so the fifth one is um, gifts. So this might be, it doesn't need to be financial, actually, it could be something simple like a love note or a letter, or it could be giving flowers, it could be concert tickets, um, it could be anything that is a gift it comes in all shapes and sizes. This morning, I went to Spinney's and I bought my husband a bottle of apple and blackcurrant squash because he loves it and a packet of Tim Tams. <laughs> so it can be them. It can be like, I saw this and thought of you or I made this for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, it could absolutely be um, something that's created and children genuinely do that with their love languages. Mm -hmm. You might notice that they'll come with a drawing and it's like a special surprise or they've made you something. So a gift doesn't need to be expensive or fancy. It could just be um, something that they've created um, themselves. That's a really interesting point because I have got the Love Languages for Kids book and I haven't read the whole thing yet, but there is a quiz in the back and I did the quiz with both of my girls. And my older one, 100% quality time. She wants one-on-one -on -one time with me. She wants to have time away from her sister. You know, she really needs that sense of connection with me. Younger one, gift-giving, 100%. You know, she loves having presents and surprises. You know, I, I bought a book for her this morning. I left it on her pillow. Um, but she also gives love in that way. So she'll often come home. And in her pocket of her backpack, she'll have a little drawing that she's folded up really tight and she goes, it's just for you. And when I open it, I've got this kind of metal chest that I keep, you know, like the baby scan photos in and cards that I've got over the years. And she goes, will you put it in the treasure chest? You know, and that's that is 100 percent the way she gives and receives love. Right, we are going to go to the text line in just a few minutes. If you want to share your love language or indeed you're feeling a bit baffled by your partners, you can get in touch. Message here saying, my love language is words of affirmation and quality time. My husband's is active service and physical touch. It can be tricky when we only express love in our love language rather than the other person's. But we are learning. Psychologist and coach Charlie Spurway is with us today as we explore the five languages of love. Um, as I said earlier, um, my husband and I had to learn about the love languages as part of our marriage preparation at church. And I wondered why you think it is so important for couples to know their love languages, both their own and each other's. 
definitely. Um, if we don't know ours, we can't communicate it and ask for it when our kind of love bucket isn't being filled. <laughs> and if we don't know our partners, we can't fill theirs as well. And sometimes um, how we give love is this, the way we like to receive it back, mm. but not always. And we spoke earlier that, you know, we might have a dominating one. It's nice to receive all five, um, but normally the top one or two that we do um, kind of is how we give love ourselves. Um, and the reason it's so important is if we kind of don't have needs awareness around our love languages and our needs, um, we tend to have very unhealthy coping mechanisms um, to meet that need. And our brain kind of works in the fastest way to get that need met. And when it's around love, it's bickering or anger or the silent treatment. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it's because we're feeling unloved, we're feeling unseen, we're feeling unheard. So we're responding in an unhealthy way to try and get the love and connection that we crave. Interesting. Okay, so we've had a lot of messages on this and I think some of the big problems are when there is a bit of a clash or a misunderstanding. Uh, we've had some just people generally sharing their their love languages. Um, can I go to the text line, Charlie? Would that be okay? Yeah. Four zero zero one. If you don't mind getting in touch there, you can be completely anonymous. Um, no name on this one. Saying, I don't know what my love language is, but my husband never compliments me, so I think it might be words of affirmation. Um, even when I dress up, saying I don't feel attractive, so I, I feel like he hasn't got a reason to compliment me. But when I do make an effort and I feel okay, he doesn't compliment me and makes me feel terrible. I know he used to compliment his ex. Um, I can't help but cry when I think about this. I've spoken to him about it, asking, do you not find me attractive? Why don't you compliment me? And his reply is that he does, but the thought doesn't come to his mind. But he thinks it. How do I move past this? Yeah, that's a big one. It's really hard because I think it takes a huge amount of bravery to say, this is what I need. This is what's important to me. You know, if I make an effort to look nice, it would mean a lot to me if you could acknowledge that. And then for him to say I do think it I just don't say it and then to not make any changes so yeah. what advice would you give to the listener Charlie? I think the biggest one is um, if this is something that has been happening for a while and it, and it concerns you um, as it sounds like um, it's to communicate that to your partner and have that vulnerable conversation and always lead with a feeling so um, I'm feeling unloved when I don't hear a compliment or maybe I feel like I don't matter um, explain that yeah I think words of affirmation are my love language and this means a lot to me and then it's for your partner as we always say that love is a choice to make that active choice in trying to meet your love language need so your love bucket if you like fills up in the way that you need. Now I'm sitting and talking about this specific message that we got but when is it a case where you are just inherently in incompatible you know is there a case of going do you know we, we just can't seem to communicate we can't make each other feel loved and seen and recognized and supported and it's just not working can, can it can it get that serious do you think yeah I mean when we have chronic unmet needs um, over a, a long time um, we can have extreme emotional responses when we're not feeling safe and we're not feeling loved mm -hmm. um, and from a love language and needs perspective um, when we're not aligning and our needs are being unmet it can be quite catastrophic for a relationship so if you don't know about love languages and you don't know about your 
personality needs, I do urge my clients and, you know, those people out there for the success of your relationship, start learning this because it is really important. Message here saying, I'm in a bit of a rough patch with my husband. We're clashing over small things and family stress isn't helping. I like the love language concept. Is there a questionnaire that can be used as a starting point? Um, So to see the other person's point of view, rather than having an open conversation, which I worried would end up as another argument. I think, yes, there is. Basically, this is based on the work of um, Dr. Gary Chapman. You can just Google love language quiz. The website is five as in the number, um, fivelovelanguages.com. And you don't need to sign up for anything. I did it earlier today. For what it's worth, I am half, well, not half, but my two dominant are physical touch. COVID was horrendous for me. I hug people in the supermarket. I was really struggling to not. Um, And words of affirmation. So you will probably get a bit of a breakdown in terms of, it's a bit like a pie chart. Your your dominant one's going down. Gift giving was my least, which I find strange because I do do love a present. Um, We've had messages saying, my love language is massaging him. So expressing love, that's, you know, through physical touch. And his is cooking for me. And accepting the fact that I'm not very well. Oh, and message here, no name, and you can, of course, be anonymous, saying, can we discuss love languages with parents? Mine is quality time and my mum's is gifts. She gets hurt when we reject the large clutter of gifts instead of spending time with her. She's a social butterfly, so quality time does not exist in her love language. This is really interesting because my mum's is gifts as well. So she will put packages in the post. We haven't told her that shop and ship actually cost us money. I can't bring myself to do it. She'll put packages in the post, mostly for the kids, or when they, we come and visit, and it's presents, presents, presents. Like we don't need more plastic tat, man. We just don't. We'd we'd rather just hang out and make memories. And she's great with playing with them as well. So, do the same concepts apply whether it's like intergenerational or you know familial love? Yeah, love languages exist within our friendships, within our romantic relationships, and also with our parents and our own children. Um, Because ultimately, we love all of those people in our lives Mm -hmm. in some capacity. So therefore, how we show them that love um, could be words of affirmation, it could be gift giving, it could be quality time. So again, it's about being able to recognize what yours is. And there's so much power within that, because Mm -hmm. then you can start unpicking it in others and be able to love them in the way that they need to be loved. Can we talk about physical touch? Because we've had two messages on this topic. Um, One is from a man who's saying, um, I'm mid-30s, married with kids, my wife doesn't touch me, no kisses, no hugs, nothing. When I go to touch her, she shrugs away. Um, We've had talks about it. She says she doesn't know why. She doesn't have the urge to be affectionate anymore. I've begged. I've seen no improvement. Intimacy has dwindled. Physical touch is definitely my love language and I feel like I'm starving. And I'm ashamed to say it has crossed my mind about looking for it outside of the marriage. This is getting to the point you alluded to earlier about, you know, when things can can really start to fall apart. Um, What advice would you give this listener? He's saying, I'm deeply unhappy. I don't know what to do. I don't want to break up my family. Yeah, um, I see this a lot in my clients um, at various different stages of the relationship dynamic breaking down. So my advice is always learn your love languages, learn what your needs are, um, because then we can start to unpack how to be brave enough and courageous enough to have these conversations. I you know, hear all of the time about the dishes not being um, cleaned up or left on the side or the laundry not being done, for example. And it's not actually about the dishes 
or the laundry not being done. It's because you're feeling unloved and you're kind of feeling, well, maybe I don't matter to you. Mm. Um, I'm not feeling that you respect me for you to be leaving that on the side. And as soon as we're able to sit down and have that conversation about how we're really feeling, rather than reacting in a bickering manner or a nagging manner or an angry manner, and we kind of go, do you know what? I actually need your support with this. Like, this is important to me. Um, I'm feeling really disrespected and really unloved when you leave dishes on the side. I know that's not your intention, but that's how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. And I would really appreciate if you could help support me feel more love from you by doing X and Y. Charlie, can I ask you where our love languages come from? You know, and I'm thinking about physical touch in particular because we've had a message saying I wasn't brought up in a lovey-dovey household, so we're just not a tactile family. Um, you can't force someone, and I would hate someone to be like, okay, physical touch is your love language, come here for your daily five-second squeeze, you know, because it feels forced and inauthentic so where do our love languages come from how what informs that so most of our love languages are developed from childhood so if you were part of a huggy um kissy family um you know that always kind of said i love you genuinely speaking physical touch and words of affirmation will be some of your dominating love languages so they kind of develop you know as we're growing up Mm -hmm. they can change and they can evolve but the key that I you know, speak to my clients about is it's just doing something small that you do feel comfortable with that's working towards your partner's love language. And over time, try and just take it a little step further and a step further. So with this um, text message, for example, just try simply by maybe grabbing the hand for a few seconds, like to kind of, or a kiss on the cheek. Okay, and then over time, maybe hold hands for longer. So we would call this exposure therapy um, and just slowly start with something that, you know, is slightly uncomfortable and over time just ease up the intensity of that. And we are human, which means we can learn and we can change and we can evolve and we can grow when we have a choice. What about the flip side? We've had a message here saying my boyfriend and I have been together two years. His love language is physical touch and he needs a lot of it. Whereas I certainly don't. I think we touch regularly. We kiss in the morning, hold hands, cuddle on the couch. He'll have his hand on my leg if we're driving, hugs in the kitchen. All of that is enough for me. But he wants to be touching all the time. We've often had disagreements about it. He feels like it's natural to want to do it all the time and tells me when he needs more. Um, In honesty, it stifles me and it makes me want to recoil. I don't want to be cuddled in bed. I want to read my book. Um, I'm at a point now whenever he comes near me, I get irritated And that's not fair on him. He genuinely wants a bit more affection um, than I feel uncomfortable to give. How can we meet in the middle? Yeah, that's a great question. And the key one is to uphold your boundaries and what you feel comfortable with, but at the same time, trying to find that compromising solution. And it's communication, communication, communication. If you're feeling uncomfortable, try and have this conversation with your partner, but with a positive twist. So reassure them how much you love them and you care for them. I call it the sandwich effect. Go in with a compliment and then talk about the underlying issue on how you feel. Just say, I really love you. However, I don't have this much kind of physical touch. And when you can start being clinical with things and label things, people can start to understand more. And hopefully from talking, you're able to find a common ground that works for you. Um, 
Charlie, do you ever come across couples where you've explained the concept of the five love languages to them and they've taken it into account and it's actually improved their relationship? Yeah, hugely. Um, Just from talking about love languages, um, knowing them, knowing their attachment theory, um, which attachment style they are, which can link to love languages as well. So if we're more avoidant, we generally aren't as touchy-feely, for example. We're more acts of service. Um, And then knowing our personality needs and being able to be brave enough to communicate them in a healthy way. And having healthier coping mechanisms, i.e. not going to anger because you're feeling unseen or getting frustrated with something that you feel powerless over. So it's about communicating and keeping that safety within a relationship so security can prevail. And it comes back to that idea about love being an active choice. You know, it really does. A message here saying, maybe she's overtouched. Too much time with kids can make her withdraw. Too stressed to be touched. Hard relate. I think a lot of parents, and I don't want to generalise and be reductive, but I think mums in particular, I used to joke that if my kids' hands were covered in ink, I would be black and blue from head to toe. Um, So, yeah, being overstimulated and overtouched by kids can absolutely... In fact, that's a great topic for another day. So thank you, Mystery Listener, for that. Charlie Spurrier, for anyone who wants to get in touch with you on this topic to explore it further or indeed come along for couples or individual uh, counselling therapy, what's the best way of getting in touch? Yeah, so I often give uh, couples tips uh, for dating or relationships on my Instagram page, which is um, Charlie Psychology. Um, or you can reach out to me if you would like some therapy on charlottespurway.com. There you go. Hope that helps. Thank you so much. Wishing you a wonderful week ahead. Now, we all know what a crucial role animals play in the health and well-being, the mental health of us humans. And we've seen numerous studies on how they can help reduce stress, ease loneliness and anxiety and give us a sense of purpose too. Now, our next guest can absolutely vouch for that. Samantha Gregson has written her first book. It's called Before You Loved Me. And it is loosely based on her own life and experience with her own dog. Tell us a little bit about the... The message of the book, Samantha, what, what, are, what are you getting across with this novel? So there's a few different messages, but I think if I had to really sum it up, it's the resilience that we can learn from animals. So um, in a nutshell, the story is about a woman. She's leaving an abusive relationship. She worries that she'll never trust again, that she'll never love again. And then she looks at her little rescue animal um, who's lived on the streets. He's had multiple owners. He's suffered abuse. And she just thinks, you know what, if he can do it and then he can commit to, you know, future relationships with such love and such loyalty, then, you know, perhaps there's an important lesson there. Mm-hmm. And that's almost what I wanted to get across is animals. They're just amazing. Tell us about the dog at the centre of the, the story. The buddy dog. <laughs> Tell us about Buddy. Is Buddy real or inspired by a, a real a real creature? So the, the book is entirely a work of fiction except for the buddy dog, who is my dog. So everything down to even the front cover, um, I was very, very particular with the publishers about it looking like the buddy dog because it is entirely based on him. So I adopted him um, eight years ago in Qatar. I was told um, little bits of information about his life, um, including that he had been found in a farmhouse with some lions, um, that he... (laughs) With some lion cubs. I can't vouch for how true this is, but that was the information I was given at the time. Um, he'd had multiple owners, um, he'd suffered abuse, um, and then he'd finally found himself back in the shelter, I think, for about the third time, and he was only two. Um, and so what I've, you know, I've 
absolutely adored this dog from from the moment that I set eyes on him and I wanted to almost pay homage to that special relationship and for me as someone that loves to write I felt that was the best way to to explore that connection that I have with them was yeah through the written form. So. I think we often diminish the importance of that relationship mm. between us and our animals and yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to try and not get emotional but um, <laughs> my our dog isn't very well right now and it's been I'm really sorry. really hard mm-hmm. to think about when we do lose him yeah. um, and I, again no disrespect to my husband but, <laughs> but our, our first dog that we got to kind of yeah. together as a couple I'm um, I think of her genuinely being one of the greatest loves I've ever, yeah. ever known, mm-hmm. ever, because it's an uncomplicated love. You know, exactly. she she would look at me with such unwavering trust and dedication mm-hmm. and losing her. And yeah. when the time comes with our boy Jarvis, it is a real grief. It is yeah. a real family member. Mm-hmm. It's someone who is just, you know, delighted mm-hmm. to see you, someone that you can share with have some of the best naps of your life with yeah um and I think we often kind of belittle that and, yeah and, and just just how crucial it is so I think this this feels like a bit of a love letter then I was literally about to say that this was and I, I say that actually in the acknowledgements it's the love letter to my dog it's acknowledging that through these past eight years uh, we've been through a lot together you know we've lived in Qatar then lived in Abu Dhabi and Dubai I'm um, he's seen me through you know different relationships I'm um, he's seen me through um you know like the loss of my grandmother um you know different family things that have happened um and he's always been there as this mm-hmm. constant and you know I don't think you could ever really show that gratitude in in a way that um that would almost do service to that relationship mm-hmm. and so this was almost my thank you to to him and to immortalize him as well just to keep him alive um it's based on it's told from the perspective of him why did why did you make that decision as an author um i think what it was was that i wanted to show i wanted to tell the story um but through the vulnerable lens of a dog i think there's there's something very very non-judgmental very vulnerable very pure and I thought what better way to almost explore the complexities of human relationships but through this incredibly vulnerable um, lens Um, and one of the main reasons as well was because I think at that time I was I was having difficulties with um, with almost explaining the, the the situation that I was in and making sense of that. And I think to almost put myself into this different perspective actually gave me a lot of clarity mm-hmm. um, on on that particular situation. Um, so that was one of the main reasons. Yeah. How did you balance having a, cor- <laughs> a corporate job and writing your first novel? How are you finding pockets of time oh, to write gosh. Samantha? And where were you writing? So I had no idea what I was signing up to initially. <laughs> initially, it started as just I was writing a little bit in the evenings and at the weekends. And then I got to say 10,000 words and 15,000 words and 20,000 words. And at that point, I thought, oh, I've got too much here to, to give up on this. Um, you have an amazing amount of hours in the day, I think, when you really put your mind to it. Um, I, in the past, have struggled to find like 30 minutes to exercise. But all of a sudden, I found six or seven hours in the day to write. And it was because it was a necessity. Mm. And because I think I was really driven by um, this need to, to finish this project that I'd started. Um, but yeah, I would sort of do three hours in the morning before work, three Gosh. hours in the evening, weekends. Um, but also, I, weirdly, I look back and I still maintained to have, you know, maintained a active social life and mm-hmm. <laughs> and, the jo- and the job would I do it again I'm I'm not entirely sure at the moment I would uh, definitely have a break I think before I consider writing the next one it's published by DreamWorks Collective and mm-hmm. it is out now 
We, is, is it available now, the book? It is. So today is the launch day. Oh my goodness, so, congratulations. Thank you. I knew it was new. I didn't yeah, realise it, it literally was your birthday. Today. Yeah, today is the launch day. So it's going to be available in um, most of the major bookstores, in physical bookstores in the UAE, and then it's available on Amazon and online bookstores as well. Before You Loved Me by Samantha Gregson. Huge congratulations. What an accomplishment. And what was it like seeing the cover for the first time? Insane. So exciting. There you go. And UA bookstores, if anyone wants to find you online, probably the best way to go is go to the dreamworkcollective.com. Information there as well. Samantha, huge congratulations. Thank you. I want to see see a picture of Buddy now. Will you show me? (laughs) Of course. Okay, you're a star. (laughs) If you want details of the book, you can just send me the word Buddy. I will send you the link. It comes out today. Samantha Gregson with us live in the studio. It's Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. Thank you so much for your messages. Ria just saying... Um, My fiancé passed away a few years ago and I decided to foster a dog for company. He has helped me through the grief, given me a new focus, and I don't know where I would be if I didn't have to get up for him every single morning. I think that is absolute testament to these beautiful animals. And before you loved me there, Samantha saying a love letter to Buddy. Climate Conversations on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. And so delighted to welcome to the studio Barbara Langlanton. She is the director of the aquarium and the Dubai Turtle Rehabilitation Project, the Burj Al Arab. I am so fascinated by your route to what sounds like a dream job. Where did your love of the planet and all creatures great and small start from? Oh, thank you, Helen, for having me You're and welcome. for your kind words. I'm a, well, I loved animals since I was very little. And my father and his brothers are uh, competitive swimmers or were competitive swimmers. And so I've always been very attached to nature and the ocean or the water. And I guess that's where it came from. And uh, yeah. <laughs> You've, um, I've been to a couple of the turtle release programs that I've seen on the beach at the Virgil Arab. And it is so emotional. Yes, it is. It is. It's a a beautiful thing you do. We're going to hear a little bit more about the rehabilitation that you do. Before we get into the detail of what's happening here in the UAE, I'd love it if we could kind of zoom out. And would you mind explaining the role, the importance of the ocean when it comes to climate? So the oceans are our lungs, <laughs> and they are also the biggest carbon sink we have in the planet. So the ocean produces more than half of the air we breathe and absorbs about 25% of all the greenhouse uh, emissions. Mm-hmm. And it also absorbs around 90% of the excess heat that we are producing through those emissions. So, it, so it regulates temperature as it well? It does, yes. ha- um, Not to ask a very basic question. I stopped science at GCSE, Barbara. How does it produce oxygen? It's mostly uh, uh, photosynthetic creatures that live in the ocean. So those are like coastal and marine habitats, just mangroves and and, re- and seagrass beds, uh, but also a lot of planktonic algae. Um, it absorbs CO2 through that as well. Unfortunately, because of the excess emissions that we are having, the ocean is becoming more acid and hot, and that is having an impact on those creatures that are actually doing this photosynthesis. And so... We are limiting the buffering capacity of the ocean to fight climate change. I think we often overlook the importance of it in terms of, you know, there are some really key things that we're absolutely addressing to do with, you know, recycling and landfill and air quality and and many, you know, energy as well. But I feel like the ocean perhaps isn't talked about in, in a commensurate way to how important it is. Why do you think that might be? I guess that even though it covers like very large part of our planet, not everyone is so close to the ocean. No? And so um, 
that's uh, and 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 I believe that people think that there is not much they can do personally to maybe help the oceans uh, thrive, mm -hmm. and, and that's a bit of a misconception because everything we do personally, like plastic waste or any other kind of pollution, air pollution, all of that is ending up in the ocean and is having all of those impacts. Uh, I would love to explore a little bit about the role that tourism plays in nature conservation because when we think about tourism and travel, I think of it as often being perhaps a bit of a negative to the environment, but are there opportunities for it to be um, positive? There are. So nature-based tourism is a very rapid growing industry. It has a growth rate of around 15% globally. Um, because, uh, you know, we are more urbanized and the kind of works we do and the kind of life we live, we feel that when we are on vacation, we want to get closer to nature. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that tourism has a very, especially coastal tourism, has a very important role to play in bringing people close to nature. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, humans are creatures that we mostly care about the things that we have an emotional and personal connect connection with. And so tourism needs to bring this connection back to nature and but at the same time because of this tourism has a big responsibility as well and uh, tourism is not only the operational part of it it's also the master planning of the tourist projects uh, the construction stage and throughout operations and I think specifically coastal tourism needs to be more sustainable resilient uh, take into consideration, obviously, uh, climate change and also assist in the very important task of restoring marine habitats and preserving biodiversity in the oceans. Barbara Langlanton is with us today. She's the director of the aquarium and the Dubai Turtle Rehabilitation Project at Burj Al Arab. Can we talk turtles? Can Absolutely. Tell, tell, us a tell us a little bit about the, the rehab work that you do and what that looks like under the waves, but also on dry land yeah. as well. So we started in 2004. So it's a very <laughs> long standing project. Next year is our 20th year anniversary. Um, just because there was a need. And so uh, in cooperation with the Wildlife Protection Office, uh, we started bringing turtles in into Burj Al Arab because we had the first large aquarium with the facilities and the team to look after sick and injured sea turtles. And then uh, because of uh, engagement of the community through school visits that we have, uh, turtle release events, such as those that you have attended, and social media and also media presence in, in all of these events, people started to understand more and more uh, about the work we do and what to do if they find a sick or injured turtle. Mm -hmm. And so we started receiving higher numbers. And then when Jumeirah Al Nasim was built, it was master planned with turtle rehabilitation pools as part right of the, at the design, center. right at the center of the hotel. So we have five lagoons that are connected to the ocean. And so the, pro the way the project works is uh, we have... Uh, hotline 800 turtle that's 800 turtle <laughs> yeah. so cute. I love it so so say for example you are out snorkeling or yeah. you're out sailing and you do see and I, you know I've seen Fahim al Kasmi's videos about yes. finding turtles with you know plastic yes. around their um you know in their in their mouth and their heads. there is a number you can call yes and then ultimately provide the location information so absolutely yeah, so that's 800 turtle. 800 turtle. I've, I've refrained from making a turtle pun, but that's totally amazing. <laughs> um, so tell us about what sea turtles do then to help maintain that ecosystem balance. Why are they a crucial creature? 
well, all creatures have a very important role to play to, uh, to keep those ecosystem balanced. In the case of sea turtles, uh, we have, for example, green turtles that feed on seagrass. Seagrass is one of their biggest carbon sinks and they trim the grass so they keep it healthy. Oh. And also there is a lot of fish species that depends on that feeding behavior of the turtles to get their bits and pieces of seagrass as mm-hmm. well. Uh, Hawksbill turtles, which are critically endangered because apart from all these other threats that sea turtles have, they are also hunted for their shell. Uh, they are born here in this part of the Gulf and uh, they feed mostly on sponges and sponges compete with corals for a space in the reefs. So they keep sponge growth at bay they help coral reefs grow healthier and around 25% of all marine biodiversity depends directly on coral reefs, specifically the fish that we eat as well. And so. And lastly, Barbara, for everyone listening today, what would you love everyone to do or change or try or adjust to think about our oceans first? Just go out, go to the beach, go surfing, go scuba diving, go swimming, go out on a boat and... Enjoy and and get close to the ocean and then learn more about it and and be part of it so that you feel connected to it. I think that's exactly what I was about to say. It's about, you know, by feeling connected to it that we feel emotionally invested and then we just can't help but care more. Barbara, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having Um, me. It really is absolutely worth finding out more about the Dubai Turtle Rehabilitation Project. Lots happening throughout the calendar as well. And I do urge you to check out their Instagram because the... The release videos are really, really something special indeed. Climate Conversations on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. We've just been talking about the importance of the ocean when it comes to acting as a climate control buffer and also the sea turtles too. Now we are going to a somewhat smaller creature and talking about the importance of bees. And who better to ask than the founder and president of the Beekeepers Association here in the UAE, Zahira Nedrui, is with us today. Um, I'm a bit disappointed you're not wearing a beekeeping outfit, Zahira. How are you? Hello, everyone. Thank you for uh, for hosting. Um, I could have. I you could've. should have. <laughs> I know we're on radio, but I think it would have added a little je ne sais quoi. Um, where did your love of bees come from? Tell us about the, the beginning of this passion. Well, it started about um, almost 10 years ago with my father-in-law in uh, Berlin, who is a, um, a hobby beekeeper and always kept two beehives on his rooftop. And uh, my love of bees started not with the bees, but with the honey extraction uh, process. Um, I'm not very, I'm, I don't have a sweet tooth. I don't like honey so much. <laughs> but the process of um, extracting the honey, uh, inhaling and, and smelling all those scents of pollen, of, of propolis, of honey is uh, absolutely intoxicating. And um, I uh, loved that and I had enough to wait to go to Berlin to do it. So decided to uh, get my uh, own hives here in Dubai. I love this. Um, tell us a little bit about the association. What is, what is it all about? What's your mission with the Beekeepers Association here in the UAE? Well, um, when, I, when I wanted to have those two hives, I couldn't find any information um, on internet or anywhere, uh, no information about associations, about beekeepers, about suppliers. And um, I found it 
quite, um, how can I say, randomly and uh, through a gentleman who was keeping some uh, hives on his backyard. And he's the one who helped me buy my uh, my first uh, beehives. And from then, um, quite naturally and quite organically, I came to the idea that there should be a platform. If I was one looking for this information, I'm mm-hmm. sure there are more people. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm a true believer in, in nonprofit and uh, decided to create this, uh, this uh, platform for people to, to, to um, like a go-to place if you want to learn about bees and beekeeping. You don't have to be a beekeeper to, <laughs> to contact us, just uh, a bee enthusiast. And um, yeah, we do a lot of education. That's our main mission. So we have um, a few initiatives such as uh, school outreach, um, public workshops on the weekends and corporate um, <laughs> activities, etc. I mean, the popularity has absolutely exploded. And I know a number of people personally who have really availed of your services and your expertise. And now, you know, there's little pockets of hives all over all over Dubai, which I think is hugely exciting. We've seen it in hotels, we've seen it in even, you know, office buildings on the roof and, you know, families at home for children as well. Um, tell us a little bit about why you believe that bees are so crucial to the planet. Is it true that if they die, we die? This is true. Um, the bees are the major pollinators in, in, in the world. Yeah, There are other pollinators, but bees are considered the main pollinators and they're responsible for pollinating one third of, of the crops, which means that one, of out, uh, one out of three bites is pollinated by a bee. Yeah. So, um, yes, bee goes, <laughs> we, go. we go. And even before that stage, when we think about, you know, produce, things like apples that might seem, you know, well-priced could suddenly become a luxury, you know, product on the shelves. It's really interesting to think about the economics of what happens if our bees, you know, bees are, are threatened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, bees and beekeeping is quite crucial to our um, environment, mm-hmm. our ecosystem, to our own livelihood. And um, it provides, you know, economic opportunities around the world. Uh, you have a lot of um, populations that rely on, on bees and beekeeping for, for livelihood. And, um, yeah, and that could be di- directly or indirectly when we think about farming and produce, exactly. we think about restaurants and supermarkets, we think about exactly. that trickle down to us as, we as have, consumers. We have a pretty fun slide when we go to schools and for children, when we do our presentation about the importance of bees, which I really like. It's, um, you know, that slide, it's pretty popular where you have a stall in a supermarket with bees and without bees and you see all the vegetables and fruits and and then the without bees is barely nothing. Mm-hmm. So we show this to 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 have an impact on on children and they're like meh don't like vegetables anyway (laughs) right and then we move to another slide and we show no chocolate and they're like the eyes start opening i'm like no chocolate why and i say do you know where chocolate comes from and they say uh yeah it's from cocoa and do you know what cocoa is it's a seed and do you know who pollinates that a bee so no bee no chocolate they're like, wow. Going, getting them in the emotional. And then comes another slide and we show kind of a happy meal with a, a no sign. And they're like, no happy meals either. And, they, and that's the big catastrophe for them. <laughs> so we tell them ketchup. Where do you think ketchup comes from? Tomatoes. Where do you think onions, you know, onion rings come from? Where do you think uh, cola comes from? And then we ask them, where do you think the beef comes from? 
And they're like, what? It's pollinated by bees? <laughs> We're like, no, but what do you think a cow eats? Mm-hmm. And, and then we start, you know, planting that seed in their mind that it's all interlinked. It's all part of a, an ecosystem mm-hmm. and, and bees are vital for that ecosystem. So here is today, founder and president of the Beekeepers Association, UAE. How are you participating in COP28? What have you got planned for the, for the coming months? So um, we wanted to raise awareness about the importance of bees in combating um, uh, climate change. Um, we consider bees as a bio uh, indicator. So what does this mean? Uh, bees give us hints about um, the health of our environment. I give you a, a very practical um, um, example. So um, we, as, as beekeepers, when we walk on the street or, or in the field, When we see flowers, we don't see flowers, we see bee food. Yeah? So we are very aware of uh, the blooming seasons. We understand when, um, when the, the flow, the nectar flow uh, happens. And um, we have noticed this past two years, and most noticeably this year, for example, that the, the seasons completely shifted. You know, so um, um, the beekeepers find it a bit difficult to adjust. So they have to adapt to, to all these changes. And mm-hmm. all this is a result of, of um, climate change. Um, um, honeys that were supposed to um, come on in like September, now we have to prepare for them in, in July. So um, there's a lot of uh, indications like that, that, that things are cha- changing. And bees are bioindicators and beekeepers are, are, are the, the voice, if you wish, of, of that. Um, uh, another example, if I may, yeah. um, is um, I am originally from Algeria. A beautiful Mediterranean uh, country, and every time I, I go there on holidays uh, in summer or, or spring, I see all these flowers and, and, and these trees, and I, and I think to myself, what a beautiful place for bees to, to, to thrive, right? I see the flowers, I see the, the, the trees. But then I learned uh, that for the past three, four years, um, the, the honey producers are not producing, like, half of what they used to, to, um, to produce because of the scarcity of nectar. So um, there is no water anymore on, on, in, in, in the lands. And, um, and, and this is a very important uh, indicator of the impact of, of uh, global warming and, and climate change on, on the whole Mediterranean uh, basin. And there is quite a few research that, that highlight this. I've had a number of questions for you to hear wow. on the text line. Uh, John wants to know, are carpenter bees part of the system? Absolutely. We have beautiful carpenter bees here. And I have actually a couple uh, that live in, in my garden on a bamboo stick. Oh, really? <laughs> you see them a lot on... Um, um, uh, <laughs> They look like beetles. They're mm-hmm. black, jet black, and uh, they, they usually forage in couples. They're solitary bees. They're not social bees like we know uh, of the mellifera species. And uh, yeah, they, uh, they're very, very important for pollinating small flowers. Okay. Yeah. And question asking about what do you need if you want to have your own hive at home? That's probably... You're the perfect person to ask. Is this, is this a question you get a lot on the group? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I would say first, um, come and visit, you know, come and visit our, our bee garden. And we are located at the Sustainable City. We offer open days to the general public. 
And if you find yourself, you know, loving that that uh, atmosphere, why don't you take um, a course? We offer courses for people with um, no experience in in beekeeping for novices. I, I would imagine that most people go f- with absolutely no experience at all. Yeah. It's not something you can kind of dabble yeah, some in. Some people have already experience and they just want to a refresher. And to, wow. to to tell you something interesting is that someone who is a beekeeper in in Europe. When he comes here in arid lands, it's a totally different practice. So for them, it's starting from scratch. So you get with us, you get a flavor of of the local environment, how we do it in arid zones. And this is something, a subject that's very close to my heart and that we would like to touch on in, in COP28 and raise awareness about beekeeping in arid zones. And uh, if I may, again, <laughs> there is um, a symposium happening in Fujairah on the 4th and the 5th of October. And there will be a lot of lectures on in, in this regard. So I invite you all to come and, and visit. So this is your chance, guys. It is beekeeperassociation.ae. There is a beekeeping course that runs over seven weeks. And, you know, as you said, alluded to earlier, school visits, outreach programs, education. Thank you so, so much to hear it. Really, really interesting. If you want to send me a bee emoji or the word bee, I will send you the website so you can find out more. On that website, you've got a beautiful quote from Gibran, Khalil Gibran saying, to the bee, the flower is the fountain of life and to the flower, a bee is the messenger of love. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really interesting to think about what's happening on gardens and rooftops all over the city for the good of our planet. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.